0: And our Living the Dream team will show you the way to enjoying the land and all the outdoor pursuits it has to offer. Here's your host, Bill Cooper.
1: We're back. Living the Dream Outdoors podcast is starting the second season We air 93 podcasts in Season 1, and you can still find us on most major social media platforms, including Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, RSS, CastBox, Deezer, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Radio Public, and more. We're now in our second season and featuring a new format, including interviews with your favorite outdoor celebrities, great hunting and fishing destinations, Living the Dream Land reports to keep you up to date on the greatest outdoor properties on the market today. Two, we will have the occasional market update, including current interest rates, and last but not least, we'll have a weekly giveaway of fabulous outdoor merchandise. There's going to be lots of fun and excitement on the new Living the Dream Outdoors podcast. If you are a turkey hunter or interested in wild turkeys, you're in for a special treat today. I have on the program today, Miss Rena Tall. She's the turkey biologist with the Missouri Department of Conservation. Rena, it's uh, it's good to have you on
2: the show. Thanks for having me here.
1: Well, I'm always interested in uh, what's going on with the Missouri Department of Conservation, and particularly when it comes to wild turkeys. You know yourself that uh, Missouri, for quite some time, decades really, has been one of the leaders in wild turkey hunting in in the nation, and we're quite proud of that. Of course, uh, I'm... Wow. In fact, I'm going to be 72 real soon. So I've spent uh, the better part of 50 years chasing wild turkeys in the state of Missouri and a few other states as well. And I'm proud to say, too, that back in the early stages, you know, we we had some of the best turkey hunters in the nation came out of uh, Missouri. And I won't get into names right now because guys always get mad at me. You know, if I call one name and don't call theirs, So I won't get into that battle this morning. But uh, so glad to have you on the program. And Renee, if you would, uh, I'd like for you to take some time and kind of give us a brief synopsis of uh, the history of the wild turkey in, in Missouri. You know, I've been one of those fortunate few in my lifetime to see the. Uh, bringing back uh, both the white-tailed deer populations and the wild turkey populations here in the state of Missouri. And that's something we're all very proud of. But, of course, we have to give uh, major credit to the Missouri Department of Conservation. So would you give us, uh, our listeners, a rundown on, on what took place to bring these turkeys back?
2: Yeah. So as you are probably aware, you know, in the early 1900s, turkeys were nearly extirpated from the state of Missouri. So basically we had just a a few pockets of turkeys left here um, in the steep parts of the Ozarks. Um, And that was mainly due to, you know, before wildlife agencies existed, harvest was generally unregulated and there was commercial harvest that would occur. Um, And there was also quite a bit of habitat loss uh, as the country was settled and and trees were cut down to be used to build structures and, and railroads and all of that. So um, it was, you know, once the Missouri Department of Conservation was kind of founded and, um, you know, took control over managing the resource, there, there was a moratorium on, on hunting that went into place on, for wild turkeys. Um, and then basically, you know, in these pockets of areas where there were turkeys, uh, MVC was able to acquire some land and intensively manage that land for turkey habitat, which led to just increases in turkey numbers within those areas. But it wasn't until about the 1950s, the mid-1950s, when uh, the rocket net was created, so essentially the, this, you know, big net that shot over turkeys with, with explosives, <laughs> uh, that we, we were able to, to trap those wild birds and move them to other places, which really accelerated the restoration effort. Um, you know, if we had just, concentrated on habitat management, eventually those turkeys would, those populations would grow and expand and move into new areas, but it would have taken a lot longer than us being able to pick them up and move them to new places. And so, yeah, basically from the 1950s through the late 70s, there was a very concerted effort to trap and translocate turkeys to parts of Missouri where they were absent. And those, you know, translocated populations were able to grow and expand in abundance from where they were dropped off to, you know, basically by the mid-1980s, there were uh, turkeys in in every county in Missouri that were, you know, great enough in number that we felt we could have a spring turkey season in in all of those areas. And so, so, yeah, that's kind of how the, the restoration effort went. And those numbers of turkeys across the state just continued to grow and expand in abundance through the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s.
1: Well, it was certainly a great thing to watch. And, of course, the National Wild Turkey Federation, I think, had a role to play in in the redistribution of turkeys as, as well. And they certainly – I think they began in 1973, if I'm correct. I know I was very active in NWTF way back then and was certainly excited, like so many Missourians and other people across the country, that the NWTF came on the scene and worked so hard to help with the restoration of the wild turkey Uh, populations across the country and also provided a lot of excellent programs one of those being the jakes program and i was actually the state jakes coordinator at one time for missouri and and, uh, had a great time participating in all these programs and holding programs usually a week-long hunter apprentice school uh, for uh, students and uh, we often uh, incorporated wild turkey hunts into those programs so nwtf uh they uh Worked pretty heavily with the MDC back in those days, particularly through the seventies, eighties, and nineties. And I assume they still are. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, we work really closely with our counterparts at the NWTF for for various different things. And um, you know, I attend the board meetings. For our group here in Missouri, but but you're right. NWTF played an into a very integral integral role in the restoration of turkeys on a national level because you know states kind of operate within their own vicinities, but um, you know NWTF was able to coordinate states working together so that turkeys could be translocated to new areas of the country. Um, and so Missouri played a, a really integral role, not just in the restoration of our own population, but in the restoration of turkeys in many other states across the United States. Um, you know, their turkey populations were maybe initially sourced here from Missouri, some of those birds. And so, um, yeah, NWTF did a really good job at, at coordinating all of that. And and now one of the big roles that they play with us is helping to fund um, you know obviously habitat management efforts but also uh, research and things as well they're they're making a lot more concerted effort to put more money into turkey research to try to answer some of these big questions we have about what's going on with turkeys nationwide
1: well nwtf yeah kudos to them and they're still doing uh great things out there and some of the wonderful programs that i participated in over the years and i've been out for some time because i'm getting so old you know it's difficult to keep up with some of those young folks but uh you mentioned that you sit in on on the board meetings there are you you actually a board member of the uh what is it the george c clark state chapter missouri uh the national wild turkey federation are you a member of that board as such
2: I am not an official board member. I serve or I attend the meetings basically as the technical representative, being the turkey biologist for MDC. So at those meetings, I provide the board members with a technical report about, um, you know, what's going on with turkeys in Missouri, what have we seen during our hunting season, um, what are we doing with research. Um, So I basically just provide them with status updates and and things like that, just so they can know, uh, you know, what's going on with the turkeys in their state so that they can make informed decisions
1: as the board. Absolutely, and I served on that board for, oh gosh, a number of years, and I, I can't remember who the biologist was back then. That's been three decades ago. But uh, always good, fresh information, and that's important, the important aspect of having the state turkey biologist uh meet with that board they have i guess still a monthly meeting but there was always up-to-date information and it was always so interesting to me because uh, the state board was not bashful you know about asking or the conservation department too was not bashful about asking for funds to provide uh, monies for uh, specific projects whether it was habitat uh, projects or even equipment purchases and i always enjoyed mm-hmm. that so much uh going through that long list and but it was a difficult process because you only had so much money although state board uh, had mm-hmm. quite a bit of money that came back to him every year from the nwtf but it was so much fun going through those lists and helping kind of prioritize uh what monies would go where and Boy, you know, it's hard to know how much credit to give to this agency and that agency, but the beautiful thing about it, and I'm sure you will agree, is the fact that these uh, agencies do cooperate with each other for the betterment of wild turkeys.
2: Yeah, it's been a really important relationship over the last several decades and is going to continue to be important um, as we've entered some more kind of tough times with our turkeys. But, you know, we not only collaborate here in Missouri, but we actually have a a group of basically every turkey biologist for every state agency in the country is part of a technical committee that's headed by NWTF, and they were really integral in getting that started. Um, and so, you know, they, we meet with, with people from the national level too, um, periodically throughout the year so that we can all talk about issues on a greater scale and how we can work together nationwide to solve those. So, um, yeah, NW, NWTF has been a great partner you know for decades and and is going to continue to be moving forward
1: well i'll ask you a c- couple questions might be difficult uh to answer uh nwtf i can remember back in the day when there were over well over 100 chapters in the state local chapters uh, do you have any idea how many chapters they have now
2: Oh, gosh, that is definitely not my area of expertise. But I know that our chapters here in Missouri, uh, when I talk to some of my other biologists and just people at national at the national level, they just talk about how Missouri does such a good job with their chapters. It seems folks here, you know, are really still involved and um, put a lot of time and effort into fundraising. And we've got a couple of really good, uh, you know, regional guys from NWTF who coordinate all of that working here in the state. And so Um, Missouri still has a very good reputation with the NWTF as far as just our chapter involvement and the folks here being just so interested in in turkeys and and helping that organization.
1: Absolutely. And remembering back in the day, I think it was a Poplar Bluff chapter. I can't remember. Every chapter's got a different name, you know, the Poplar Bluff Lemhangers hangers or, yeah. or whatever but poplar bluff was such a a busy area for the national wild turkey federation and i think several years in a row they raised over like a hundred thousand dollars at their annual banquets but they also did that with nra banquets in in uh, poplar bluff so that was an extremely active group of people in that part of the world and you can rest assured they made a great difference in their area as far as uh uh, wild turkeys were concerned but the thing is and you know as well as i do that uh if you're helping wild turkeys and you're uh improving habitat for them you're also improving habitat for a lot of other creatures
2: yes yep a lot of the habitats that benefit turkeys will benefit a whole host of of other wildlife um and so that can be, uh, you know, a good thing to leverage because that means we can get folks who maybe don't care as much about turkeys as we do um, to also be interested in putting turkey habitat on the on the landscape. You know, maybe they're more interested in pollinators, but those pollinator plots can have benefits for turkeys and, and quail and other wildlife. Um, so it kind of goes both ways where we can, can leverage other folks who have other interests and also helping the turkey by putting habitat on the landscape, and people who are interested in turkeys can feel good that they're helping other species as well through their efforts.
1: Absolutely, and I don't remember their website. I think it's monwtf.org, but We talked about helping and that's one of the great things that Missourians have been known for doing throughout the decades is pitching in to help uh, with conservation efforts and we know that Dave we appreciate our Missouri Department of Conservation because it's a non-political agency which a lot of people don't understand but uh, they are kind of their own entity in the state of Missouri and pretty exempt from politics and that's something that we're very proud of in the state of Missouri but it allows Missourians to help even more and uh, we're going to talk about probably here in the second segment coming up pretty soon about what people can do to help uh, with habitat improvement projects for the wild turkey in the state of missouri we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back but first we're going to talk to brandon lickleiter over at marriage county bank
3: Hi everyone, Brandon LeCleiter here with the Marys County Bank. Um, today I wanted to talk to you real quickly about the pre-qualification process. Um, as we've talked about, there's a lot of really nice properties out there and this process can help you be ready to buy when the time is right. Um, typically at the bank, um, what we're going to collect to pre-qualify would be two years financials at minimum. Um, so we're going to be looking for tax returns, W-2s, pay stubs, anything that's applicable to the transaction itself. And of course, a completed application. We do have several ways we can get that application to you via our website or via encrypted email, make the process secure if you're not local or if there's you know any special circumstance we need to work with. Um, from there, we're going to go through a review process where we're going to go through questions with you and we're going to really look at um, your situation as it pertains to the transaction, um, gather all of that information, and really make the best decision for you moving forward. And again, this, this process is really designed to help you be prepared to buy when the time's right. So as we've talked about, these properties are really booking up fast. So when you see them out there, you know what your buying power is, you know what you're capable of doing, allows you to act quickly and and be in the running for some of these great properties Um, in closing here just want to let you know that the mary's county bank is an equal housing lender and member fdic and if you have questions or you'd like to talk through this process with me feel free to reach out to me at 573-265-4600 again my name is brandon Licklider with the mary's county bank
1: welcome back to the living the dream Outdoors podcast i have on the show with me today rennie Tiles. she's the wild turkey program leader for the missouri department of conservation and of course i hope you like me are greatly in favor of most things that the missouri department of conservation does they've got their fingers in all kinds of conservation efforts across the state of missouri and uh, you need to get on their site and take a look there's all kinds of programs that take a place across the state i know i get Six, eight, ten Facebook posts every day mentioning programs that are taking place in various communities. But to continue our topic of discussion for the show about the wild turkey, uh, Rainy gave us an update on uh, wild turkey restoration, and that's something that we're extremely proud of in the state of Missouri. But Rainy, now we want to talk a little bit about a topic that that's kind of kind of hurts all of us. We don't like what's going on, and it has nothing to do with the. Department of Conservation's efforts, but there has been a decline in wild turkey numbers across the United States for really uh, quite some time. Can you tell our listeners when, uh, maybe when this decline started and what some of the reasons are for the declines? And last of all, maybe in the third segment, we'll talk about... uh, things that uh, MDC and other organizations are now doing uh, to help uh, resolve this problem, if you can call it that, uh, with the wild turkey populations across the country. But first, uh, when did it start?
2: Right. So we talked about in the previous segment how after the restoration effort was really complete, at least the active, you know, trap and translocation efforts, turkey populations continued to grow in abundance and expand throughout the state. Um, and that, that increasing abundance really continued into the early 2000s. Um, about 2004 is when we had our peak turkey harvest during our spring season. So we harvested over 60,000 turkeys just within within that, that season. And it was really after that that we started seeing the decline in numbers. So, you know, the latter half of the 2000s, we saw declining trends in our turkey harvest, uh, declining trends in turkey production. Um, or we had a few years of poor production that we think led to lower turkey abundance, which contributed to some of that. Then in the early 2010s, we saw a few years of, of improved production, and our abundance has kind of stabilized. Um, but recently, as folks are probably well aware of by now, um, since 2016, we've had, you know, year after year, it seems, of, of relatively poor production. We're talking about like a one uh, pulp per hen ratio or lower um, for about five years now on a statewide scale. And so that has had a pretty big impact on what we've seen recently with turkey numbers and just having lower abundance throughout the state. But kind of the interesting part of this picture, or one of the interesting parts is that that peak that we saw in the early 2000s, um, that's pretty typical of, of what you see when you have a restored population like wild turkeys, where they were essentially absent from the landscape, they went through a period of almost exponential growth during the 80s and 90s. Um, It takes a little bit of time for that exponential growth to catch up with reality. So we often see the number of turkeys on the landscape or the number of wildlife individuals on the landscape in these situations overshooting what the landscape can actually sustain. And we call that, that, that number that the landscape can sustain can sustain the carrying capacity of the landscape, and so we tend to see the numbers kind of overshoot that, and then you'll see this period of of dieback is what we call it, and that basically is just the landscape saying, hey, we don't have enough resources to support the number of you that are out here, and so you will see, you know, that reflected in your vital rates where you might have lower production or something like that to kind of bring the numbers back into check. And then from here on, we're in what we call now after experiencing that dieback, we're in this era, this new era of turkey um, population dynamics called the post-restoration era. And we can expect to see fluctuations in our turkey numbers from year to year or on a several year cycle moving forward, um, basically primarily driven by production. So we will expect to see some times where we have more turkeys, sometimes where we have fewer turkeys. um, But on average, we kind of oscillate around this carrying capacity level. Um, Unfortunately, what we've kind of seen recently is that, um, you know, our our peaks aren't as high as the previous peak and our valleys might be lower than the previous valley. So, we are seeing even with those oscillations, um, just kind of this long-term declining trend in abundance in some of the indices that we collect. Um, And so, that's kind of, I guess, where we're at with turkey numbers right now. But Something to think about too. You know, we talk about production being one of the main drivers of turkey abundance um, here in Missouri and and really across the country. And and that production index that we have, our to hen ratio that we calculate with our summer brood survey, has been on this long term declining trend since the '80s. So we said in the '80s, you know, the turkey population was growing in abundance. But that's really when we started started to see that decline. It just seems like it took. A little bit of time for that long term declining trend in production to kind of catch up with us, um, and so now we 're kind of seeing the more year year to year more annual effects uh, in Turkey abundance from production um, so yeah, I, I know it 's kind of a complicated picture that 's due to a few different <laughs> factors
1: oh absolutely, and being in the outdoor communications business, I hear a lot of talk about uh, turkeys and talk to a lot of turkey hunters and it's a little disappointing to me at times that uh, so many people will key in on one factor and uh, of course one of the factors i hear a lot about uh, is is predators and we know that that's a part of the the problem but uh, certainly not all of the problem as you mentioned it's a very complex uh, situation when you're talking about an environment or habitat for a particular species there's many many things that affect the rise and, and fall of their uh, populations. But can you address predators uh, f- for just a few minutes here? Uh, What's your feeling about the effect of uh, predators on turkey predation?
2: Yeah, so, you know, we like I said, we've, we've had this long-term declining trend in our turkey productivity now for several decades, and um, there's multiple factors that go into that. So, you know, we've seen changes in habitat you know, landscape-level changes in habitat across those decades. You know, we've seen changes in our predator populations as well. Um, quite a few of our nest predator populations are, are greater now than they were de- several decades ago. Uh, we've seen changing weather, too. You know, we have, it seems like this, this spring and summer, the story has been it's either way too wet or way too dry, <laughs> um, you know, there's not a whole lot of middle ground there. And we're seeing, you know, these increasing instances of, of really intense rainfall in a short period of time. So what kind of influence could that be having on turkey production? And also, you know, poults, they rely on insects for food, especially when they're really young. And so and we've seen declining populations of insects on a long term scale as well. And so, you know, how could that be influencing their growth and their survival. Um, and so predators are one part of that piece of the equation, and, and there's no doubt, you know, that that those increasing numbers could be having some sort of effect on turkeys. Um, but it's not the only piece of the equation, and there are other right. things going on here that really all need to be addressed together in order to see any effect or any improvement um, in our turkey production.
1: Well, historically, you know, uh, we have persecuted animals <laughs> had bounties and all sorts of things and the coyote is a perfect example uh there's probably been more uh money spent on cow bounties than any other creature in the in the country and yet cow populations have expanded you know uh we hear about them being in Mm -hmm. urban areas all the time they're in uh, many more states than they were 50 years ago so just uh getting after predators doesn't always cure the problems and of course uh coyotes are one of the big animals that uh People point fingers at when it when it comes to turkey predation and that sort of thing. But there's a number there's. It seemed like everything likes to eat turkeys, and including human beings, you know. And and uh, they're in trouble yeah. from the <laughs> and, and they're in trouble you're, from the time right. they're in the egg forward. So it 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 is a very complex uh, situation. But I I think you gave us a pretty good uh, uh, idea of of what's you know the multitude of problems are, but you mentioned the one term here that I'd like you to expand on just a little bit, so people get a clear understanding of of what you're talking about. You mentioned landscape level changes now i've had discussions over the years particularly with quail hunters you know we really lost our quail population in, in missouri we know that was due to a landscape level change and a lot of it in the ozarks was the introduction of fescue during the 1950s but when you're talking about landscape level mm-hmm. changes that affect uh, wild turkey populations exactly what are you referring to
2: right so um, landscape level, when we talk about that, we're basically, it's a broad way of saying, you know, what is the quantity of certain habitat types, uh, in Missouri, if we want to talk about Missouri level, um, but also how are those pieces of habitat arranged in space? Um, it's, it's easy, I think, for folks to, or maybe difficult to try to uh, think about habitat connectivity and and on a landscape level, because normally we're just concerned with our own property. It's really easy to think, you know, on my property, I've been doing these different practices for however many years and nothing has changed. Um, But just on a, on a large landscape level, we've had losses in, um, you know, grassland, herbaceous dominated habitats. A lot of those have been converted um, into agricultural production, whether that's row crop or, you know, pasture grazing or hay production. Um, And some of our forests, too, um, I have a lot of landowners that come to me and say, you know, I haven't done anything to my forest in 40 years, so it's the same as it was 40 years ago. But the reality is if you haven't been actively managing your forest through uh, timber harvest or, you know, just other active management practices, you know, burning, things like that, then that forest is 40 years older than it was 40 years ago. And so we've seen just throughout Missouri this trend of of Less availability of quality herbaceous habitats in open areas and then just an overabundance of closed canopy, uh, more mature forests that don't have herbaceous vegetation in the understory uh, on, on a statewide level. And so that has contributed to broad scale losses in, you know, not only the quantity, but also the quality of our wild turkey nesting and broodering habitats across the state. Um, so that's kind of what we mean when we talk about these landscape-level changes. It can be hard to wrap your head around because we're talking, you know, about big areas and not just necessarily individual properties, but it's the cumulative effect of all these individual properties.
1: Well, that's an excellent excellent explanation. And I first only understood the, the landscape-level changes in reference to coil. I can remember talking to a biologist many, gosh, two or three decades ago uh, talking about well you know can't we make habitat improvements on our little 40 60 80 acres and and have quail on our place and that was first time I ever heard uh, the term landscape level changes and he explained you know what happened particularly in the Ozarks with the introduction Mm -hmm. of fescue and so many other things clean clean row farming and uh, reducing edges around fields and all those sorts of things but uh, he made it very clear to me that no you're not going to bring a quail back by managing your 40, acre- 40 acres and he explained it too uh, through the idea that uh, you got to have thousands of 40 acre plots so that these quail can inter- intermix for breeding purposes and on and on and on so it mm-hmm. does make when you think about it in the long term yeah that 40 year old patch of woods has changed a lot in 40 years and so has the landscape that we live in here in the state of missouri mm-hmm. and in the next segment i'd like for us to explore the idea of all right we know what's going on what can we do about to uh, to change and head back the direction we want to be going folks stay with us we're going to be right back after a short break hey bill you know what time it is yeah, I always know it's what time, time for it is. It's time for the giveaway announcement.
4: <laughs> we, uh, That's of course, awesome. this is the first time, uh, the first episode of the season two. And, uh, of course, we ran a giveaway and we were giving away a $100 gift certificate towards uh, Damon Spurgeon's, what's it called there?
1: Cardiac Mountain Outfitters. And I can't <laughs> brag on Damon enough because I've been in that drip boat. His, and I'm telling you, folks, the person that win this is going to be one happy
4: day. Oh, yeah. Man, his smallmouth trip with Damon is the thing. I've been talking about it all week, the last couple weeks, you know. Uh, I want to go.
1: <laughs> For so, a small fee, I could probably arrange that, Frank's. Yeah, right. Well, I just put my name in here. I saw that. Yeah, that's not going to fly, buddy. I can't draw my name. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I well, i don't I'll think take so. that one out but, here. But, Hang on, I got the bowl. But but if you draw mine, that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I got to say, I've been in that boat. Uh, Damon and I have worked together quite a lot over the last few years of uh, I hope. I've uh, been instrumental in help building his business because I believe in him, man. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I've i never seen anybody catch fish like Damon Spurgeon and his crews. But, uh, hey, there's 37 names in that pot. Yeah, People I got that, the
4: biscuit bowl here, and we yeah. got the names. You went ahead and cut them all out and put them in here. And so I'm going to rattle my hand around in here. Now, the way that you had to enter this thing, course, is you had to go to the, what, to the Facebook page for Living the Dream Outdoors podcast and all that, and then you had to go in there and comment your name yeah right e- easy enough
1: but interesting we got people all way from canada to all mexico over. that that's crazy like, it, it is it? hey but yeah so, so here, here we, we go i'm gonna go ahead and, yeah. yeah
4: here we go pull pull a name out here let's see what we
1: got Bree Hodge, you're kidding? No, I'm not. <laughs> Boy, she's gonna be one happy lady. Now, Bree, uh, interesting story because Bree uh, is fairly new to fly fishing. Her husband, I think, uh, has fly fished for years. He's a chaser of big fish. But, oh, yeah, primarily with spinning gear. But uh, it's been several years ago. Bree and her husband James went down the Current River with Damon and myself, and was actually her first trip. Oh, wow hadn't even fly fished before 15 minute lessons go to the stream and she outfished everybody <laughs> <laughs> beginner's luck yeah <laughs> but awesome C- congrats brie i'll be texting you or send you an email and, and just send that certificate with it and of course yeah you can get a hold of damon and arrange your own trip there
4: uh, now for next week we're good we're uh talking about uh stained water bow fishing right also man right. well actually for this episode
1: i'm getting all screwed up right yeah. right yeah uh yeah we'll start uh probably tomorrow they can start registering for that yep yeah and, and again go go to our website living the dream outdoors podcast and just like the page and then under comments enter enter your name and yeah you're entered you're, yep that's you're all in. it takes
4: and so, it, Brian, uh, he's been bow fishing for a long time. Tell a little bit
1: about the trip. Oh, my gosh. Brian, hey, he's right up there with Damon Spurgeon. They are both uh, well-respected, well-known experts in their given field. And Brian, of course, he's from right over here at Jerome Missouri, a local boy, knows these Ozark streams like the back of his hand. But he's a bow fisherman, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he's ever caught a fish on a rod right away. <laughs> Well, <laughs> he probably has, but, you know. <laughs> he started bow fishing. these rough fishing. You know, carp, buffalo, gar. Yeah. Like the Ozarks, they, they got into a few months ago to, shooting koi you know oh yeah yeah people turn them loose i guess in the lake they get oh, to taken care of them, and they've killed some big ones man beautiful beautiful goldish red and and black fish wow gorgeous things but these guys are deadly now you think oh gosh we're come, probably gonna float down a river and shoot a fiberglass bow and fall out of the boat and all that stuff no 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 no.
4: no. <laughs> i've <laughs> Bru- seen them rigs he's got yeah they come from yeah cool. come
1: from caltown yeah. usa uh, they're one of his sponsors and uh, i'm going to be a sponsors as well but these things look like barges frank they yeah like 20 22 feet i don't know 80 inches wide or something yeah got a nice uh deck and rail up on front i think four people at a time can shoot yeah uh,
4: they're they're big boats and then platforms are built to built to last they're sturdy they're not oh, all about you know not about two but, by fours and stuff no 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 i
1: mean it's polished aluminum pro all looks great you got a rail that's going to hopefully keep you from falling in the water yeah and uh, he's got the latest and greatest bow fishing equipment mm-hmm. and man what a blast because this guy will put you on fish
4: oh absolutely so between uh, depends on if he's uh, doing tiny como or uh, or the local streams here but what you'll be entered in to win here is a hundred dollar gift certificate towards the hunt Or towards the fishing hunt, I guess is what it it is, It's a hunt.
1: Yeah, they hunt fish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So great, great fun. But he's had people come in from all over the United States for these trips. And I tell you what, don't hesitate once you get this certificate in your hand to get a hold of him. Yeah, get it scheduled. You you may very well be on a waiting list. Yeah, yeah, you could be. That's for sure, yeah. But ton of fun. But anyway, be sure and uh, get your name in the pot. 37 for the first drawing. How many do you think you will have next? Oh, man, there
4: ain't no telling. There could be over 100 on this next <laughs> one for all we know. So, all you got to do to enter is listen to this thing coming up next here, and it'll I'll tell you one more time how to enter. Hey, guys, this is Frank Cox with Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. Hey, each episode we do a free giveaway. We draw from the grab bag here full of all of these gift certificates. Each gift certificate is valued at approximately $100, give or take. And you can get stuff such as discounts on fishing trips. You can even get coupons towards your purchases at different sporting goods stores or online websites and things like that. The way to enter is you go to our Facebook page, Living the Dream Outdoors Podcast. And once you get on there, like the page first, and then scroll down to this episode's giveaway, and we'll draw your name from the hat and announce it on the next episode. So be sure to do that, and we look forward to seeing what you're going to get.
1: Welcome back to Living the Dream Outdoors podcast. I'm Bill Cooper, and on the program with me is Rena Tiles. She's our state turkey program leader probably best known as a turkey biologist but Renia how long how long have you been at the job
2: I've been here for just over two years now
1: oh, okay well you, uh, you're very young then I suppose <laughs>
2: I want to ask you your age but <laughs> yeah yep I,
1: you had you had some big uh, shoes to <laughs> fill though when you you stepped into that position didn't you
2: yeah, definitely. So, uh, Jason Isabel, our previous turkey biologist, he had been in the position I think for about seven or eight years when he was promoted or, or got a different job within the department, um, and he had done a lot of really good work during his time here, and was just very knowledgeable about you know turkey population dynamics and harvest management, and so uh he was really it was really nice to have him around when i transitioned into this position because i was pretty fresh out of grad school um and we think a lot about research and and my project in grad school was very applied and was going to affect management of turkeys um in south dakota but uh just the ins and outs of harvest management and and how you can manipulate regulations to potentially change things, and um, all of that was quite new to me, and so uh, it was nice to have him here, and and we'd sit down and just talk for hours about all these things, just so (laughs) I could kind of get a crash course on turkey management, basically. (laughs) Oh,
1: absolutely, but uh, hey, we've had great turkey biologists from the very beginning, and again... They are the ones that brought the turkeys back to Missouri, so we have to always applaud them. We applaud you, too. Glad you're here and appreciate what you're doing. But for the next few minutes here, let's let's take a look and kind of delve into what MDC is doing to try to correct this problem and what private landowners can do. Because I think, what, 95% of land in Missouri is in private hands, so there's a great deal of impact. Mm Mm-hmm. That individuals can have on habitat restoration and improvement as well. So, first off, what is MDC doing to improve the prospects of increased turkey numbers?
2: Right. So, through some of the research that we've had in the past and, and various indices, you know, it's become pretty increasingly obvious to us that, you know, production, this, this production side of the equation, is really what's driving turkey numbers right now. Um, you know, our survival rates. Of, of our adult birds are, are pretty good compared to what they used to be decades ago. And that doesn't appear to be the problem. So if we were seeing like a disease killing a bunch of our adult birds, we would expect to see that survival rate go down, but we're not really seeing that happen. Um, and same thing with our harvest rates. We've looked into those to see if we can manipulate those in a way that will, quote, unquote, solve all of our problems. And unfortunately, it does not appear to be that easy of a, of a solution. So um, we have really keyed in on this production side of the equation, trying to figure out, you know, why are we producing fewer turkeys in the summer times than we used to? Um, and we talked about all those different things that could be having an impact, habitat, predators, weather, food. Um, and so we've developed this new research project in cooperation with the University of Missouri and, and also, you know, with some funding from the National Wild Turkey Federation um, to investigate that, to basically measure all of these different variables, um, predator densities and occupancy, weather variables, um, habitat at nest sites and in areas used by broods, um, and trying to use all that information to determine, you know, in what habitats are we having the best nest ex- success or what what drives nesting success in Missouri, what drives pulp survival in Missouri, um, what is causing the majority of our pulp deaths. So is it is it predators eating them? Are they dying of hypothermia because of weather and not having good good cover? Um, and so it's a it's a project that's going to go on. We're just in our first season first field season right now and we'll collect data over the next three years too. Um, and hopefully that'll help us parse out basically the relative importance of all those different things, you know, what's is it it predators that's having the biggest impact? Is it weather that's having the biggest impact? Um, And that will help us also inform how we might manipulate the landscape through habitat management um, and conservation to hopefully improve our nesting success and our pulp survival um, so that we can see improved production, which will then lead to increased turkey abundance.
1: Boy, I don't know if I took all that in or not, <laughs> but... Uh,
2: I know, it's really, there's a lot, like we said, it's a complex problem, there's a lot of things going on, and so you kind of have to have an all-encompassing look like this to try to figure out what what's really causing the issue. What's at the root root of this problem?
1: Well, I think uh, all of us out here in Turkey land, you know, we have to look at it uh, like a puzzle, and I find myself, and I'm sure lots of Other turkey hunters do this as well. I get interested in a particular aspect of turkey management or habitat management, and I kind of dwell on that for a while. But you know, that's not a bad thing. Uh, We uh, educate ourselves in that capacity uh, by being interested, first of all, and then looking into situations Mm -hmm. and getting some answers. And I know that uh, you guys are uh, full of answers with all of the uh, uh, research that you've done Done in the past, and the things that are going on now. Are there any current research projects going on uh, that'll have an effect on improvement of habitat or anything?
2: Yeah, so that project that I just described—that's right. going to be hopefully one of the big outcomes of that. Is you know we can't obviously control the weather, um, and your ability to make large-scale impacts on predator populations is is quite a tough. Nuts to crack, right. but we might be able to figure out through that project. You know how can we manipulate habitat to provide you know cover from bad weather for right. our turkey broods and nesting turkeys, um, providing shelter from predators, um, and all these and all these different things. Or, or you know what habitat types have the greatest insect abundance, and also you know have enough bare ground in between clumps of plants that pulps can move through. Um, without a bunch of effort. Um, so the results of that project will hopefully help us shed light on, you know, what, what habitat types, what habitat structures can potentially buffer turkeys from these negative effects that we can have less control over, Ex- um, essentially.
1: Exactly. Well, a couple of topics I want to cover here kind of the last part of this uh, segment is we're human beings, and we often – have these great fears you know of things that are going to happen and i hear rumbling sometimes and uh, a lot of hearsay takes place and once a rumor starts you know it spreads like wildfire particularly when you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, deer and wild turkey populations but i'm always hearing people say oh they're going to reduce the turkey limit they're going to close the season next fall and all that sort of thing i don't think any of that is true but uh can you address that for us right
2: so we've looked at some of those different things, you know, lowering a bag limit, closing the fall season, what sort of impact would that have on turkey numbers? You know, would that lead to stabilization of our turkey population, so essentially stopping that decline? And and what we found is even with some really drastic changes, like completely closing our fall season, it would not have a big effect on all, on overall turkey abundance down the line. And, and that's basically because our, our fall season, we harvest Proportionally, such a small number of turkeys on a right. large scale that, with those turkeys still on the landscape and the production, the levels of production we're having right now, which is not very good, does not lead, lead to a big increase in turkey numbers. With those, you know, two thousand hens and, and two thousand males still out on the landscape, and we've been seeing, you know, declining interest in our fall firearm season for decades now. I think interest in that season peaked back in the the late nineteen eighties, um, and so. There's not a big risk that all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> right. participation in that season is going to increase to an unsustainable level where we're suddenly going to be harvesting 10,000 turkeys during our fall seasons. Um, and so just knowing that there's still a few people out there that enjoy that and it's not having a negative effect on the population, um, just still providing that opportunity to people. But of course, you know, as this, you know, as the, the tough trials of, of turkeys in Missouri continue, that's something that we'll keep an eye on. You know, if if down the line we do see that that changing a regulation would have an effect that would be positive for, for turkeys, we would of course consider that. Um, it's just, you know, our, our job here is basically to provide the opportunity that we can within the confines of the resource and making sure it's not having a negative impact on the resource. And so As long as we see that it's not having a negative impact, uh, we'll continue to provide that opportunity.
1: Sounds like a great plan to me. And, of course, I'm I'm one of those people that still enjoy fall turkey hunting. I go out and every year i'm not always successful but it's one of the most beautiful times to be in the out of doors particularly in october when the air is cooling not as many bugs out there and uh, leaves are changing it's a great time of year to be out there rennie a couple last questions here before we close out uh, the program uh we've talked uh boy a lot about turkey and turkey biology and turkey management this morning it's a lot to try to absorb in an hour or so but uh One of the questions that I hear quite often, people wonder about, how many turkeys are out there? You know, at the peak, how many did we have? And how many do we have now? The loss is not as great as it might sound like.
2: Uh, Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, (laughs) It's really difficult to estimate turkey abundance on a big scale just because of how much densities can vary, even like within a county. Um, And so... Historically, we've we've estimated turkey abundance through a, a big assumption that you're removing 10% of your population during your spring season. So, um, And other states use this to estimate their turkey abundance as well. So you essentially take your spring season harvest totals and you multiply that by 10 and you can kind of get a ballpark idea of how many turkeys you have out there. Um, but obviously, if your harvest rate changes from year to year, there's, there's some flexibility in that. Um, and so... Using that method, you know, back in 2004 when we harvested over 60,000 turkeys, you wow. might say we had 600,000 turkeys. Um, and more recently, where our harvest, you know, during the spring has been closer to 40,000 or even below that, you know, you might expect that we have somewhere between 350 to 400,000 turkeys on a statewide scale. But like I said, it's a big assumption that goes into that calculation. It's a, it's a very crude estimate. Um, we are working on some models that will help us estimate turkey abundance uh, with a greater level of precision. So um, hopefully soon we'll have these models that will basically tell us, you know, in this, even in this region of Missouri, in this region of Missouri, we have 50,000 male turkeys, give or take 10,000 or something like that. And So we'll be able to have a much greater uh, idea of our relative turkey abundances in different regions. And then also statewide, you know, how many turkeys do we have? Kind of like we've done with other species here in Missouri. Um, if you've heard any of our talks about bears, you know, we've developed a bunch of models that can tell us, you know, we have approximately, you know, this many bears to this many bears in this in this part of Missouri. And so um, we're looking to to do the same thing with with turkeys, so that we can hopefully you know, better keep track of their abundance from time to time and better keep track of harvest rates, and and that'll basically just improve our management down the line as we enter this unknown period of turkey fluctuations from year to year, um, which is something that we didn't experience during the restoration period. So,
1: Exactly. Well, I appreciate all that you do. One last question, and this was a tough one, but turkey hunters Mm -hmm. will be interested. What are the top two regions in Missouri with the most abundant turkey populations?
2: So, yeah, we do see, um, we tend to see the highest turkey densities. And so you might say, you know, turkey abundance in areas that have a good mix of land cover types. So, kind of along our Ozark border, you know, where um, you have a good mix of trees and open space, kind of along the Missouri River breaks, um, we tend to see greater turkey abundances relatively in those areas just because a greater diversity of land cover types tends to hold. Uh, more animals. When you get into really core forested areas, you can see lower densities. So um, have some of our lower densities down in in the more core forested areas of the state, and then even you know in our more open areas of western and northern Missouri, um, you can see lower densities in those areas as well. So that's generally what we've seen through time, and and we calculate that information through our bow hunter observation survey. So folks who go out and archery hunt in the fall, um, they can basically record the number of turkeys and other um, animals that they're seeing while they're sitting in their stands, and that helps us get an idea of, you know, turkeys observed per period of time, um, and so we can get an idea of relative densities across the state through that.
1: Well, thank you so much. Now I know where to plan on going next spring. <laughs>
2: and it doesn't necessarily i will say you know the caveat right now is we see numbers are really driven by production so the the regions that i would probably key in on are ones that maybe had good production a couple years ago because those tend to have the the most uh two-year-old toms which tend to be the most vocal and most responsive to hunters in the field um and so it can, you know, it's not necessarily a given that you're going to see more turkeys in one area, especially, you know, as we see production vary across the state. But, but yeah, and and that's a pretty broad area, you know. I'm not giving people specific, you know, conservation areas to check <laughs> you know, out okay. or this guy's yeah. this guy's property. But, <laughs> but yeah, if you go looking for them, you'll find them. Oh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> well, ready in the closing here. Uh, Give us uh, information about contacts, uh, websites, whatever, where people can go to get more information about uh, not only wild turkeys, but what MDC is doing to help the population.
2: Right. So, um, you know, folks who own property or their family owns property and they're interested in seeing, you know, improvements to turkey numbers on that area, I would encourage them to go to our website, um, look up your local contacts, Uh, and figure out who your private land conservationist is is for your county, Um, that person can come out to your property and, and assess the current habitat that you have, talk about what your goals are, and they can help you create a management plan for, you know, creating that habitat on your property and also identify some cost share dollars that can help you fund that work and maybe even help you find contractors to do the work if you can't do it yourself. So those people are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to managing your property for turkey habitat. And also on our website, you know, we publish uh, turkey population status report annually and we publish our brood survey results on our website annually and so you can find those if you go to the website and just look up, you know, turkey reports, um, you can find a lot of information there.
1: Very good. Thank you for that information and thanks for being on the program. And folks, we hope that you too are getting outside and living your outdoor dreams. I'm Bill Cooper.
4: Hey guys, this is Frank Cox with Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. Hey, have you ever considered a career in real estate? If you have, but you don't have your license, this is your opportunity. So each month, the Living the Dream Outdoor Properties team is giving away a free seat to the online training that you need to take in order to get your real estate license. We would love to have you join our team. All you got to do is go to our website, livingthedreamland.com, and then click on the Our Team button, and then click on the one that comes up under that that says Join Our Team. On that page, there's an application form. Just simply fill that out and get in contact with a member of our team, and I'll be giving you a call. We appreciate you and uh, good luck.
3: The Live in the Dream Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Living the Dream Outdoors Properties, The Fly Rod Journals, SmokerBuilder.com, Cowtown USA, Westover Farms, Scenic Rivers Taxidermy, Stained Water Bow Fishing, Scenic Rivers Guide Service and Tours, Huzzah Valley Resort, Pico Lures, Devil's Backbone Outfitters, Cardiac Mountain Outfitters, Mary's County Bank, The Fallen Outdoors, Leadco Sinkers and Lure Company, and Rich's Famous Burgers.
0: Land ownership is the American dream. Land is the basis of all life. Our wise use of this most precious of resources ensures the survival and growth of free institutions and our American way of life. At Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, we value the traditions and freedoms that land provides us. Every day we seek the solace of a mountain sunrise over traffic jams and smog, the calming silence of a bubbling stream over the sirens of the city, and the quiet of the countryside over the hustle and bustle of the world. We hunt, we fish, we farm. We live off the land. It's our mission to help our clients live out their dreams on the land as we do. At Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, we believe that it's not just land, it's a lifestyle. Join us five days a week on Living the Dream Outdoor Podcast as the Living the Dream Outdoor Dream Team explores the most desired outdoor properties in the Midwest and whisks you away to incredible hunting, fishing, and outdoor recreation opportunities. Host Bill Cooper, an inductee of the National Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, will be joined by members of the Living the Dream Outdoors team each week as they tell tall tales, unveil tips and tactics, and rub elbows with some of the biggest names in the outdoor world. You'll also find the Living the Dream Outdoors podcast on your favorite social media platforms, including Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok.